Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Hi, I'm Pat Iyer, and this is Legal Nurse Podcast. I'm talking today with Stacy Lohmeyer, who is a legal nurse consultant located in Michigan. She's got a solid experience working as a pediatric nurse before she left the hospital to have her daughter, and now she does a combination of legal nurse consulting behind the scenes, expert witness work as a med surge expert, and she is also a faculty member in charge of supervising, training, managing those legal nurse consultants to be eventually, some of them at least, as she works with student nurses to help them develop the skills that they need to be able to take care of patients. Stacy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Pat. I know as we were chatting prior to planning this podcast, we thought it would be interesting to start with a question about a memorable case that you screened for medical malpractice. Many attorneys see LNCs as being infinitely valuable in this role. And I know you've got experience doing that service for attorneys. What sticks out in your mind as a case that had an impact on you? There's one case that I'm very proud of. Um, Not only was it a very positive settlement for the family, it actually changed hospital nursing policy. And I'm very, very proud of that case. Um, This involved a 52-year-old woman very healthy, um, was on an adult soccer league, was a non-smoker, but she was diagnosed with lung cancer and needed to undergo a left lower lobe lobectomy. Uh, Initially, the surgery went well. Initial post-op period, she did well. Uh, She did have a fentanyl epidural catheter for pain control. And the first day post-op in the morning, she was very sleepy. She had respiratory rates in the single digits. And anesthesia was notified, and they wrote an order to reduce the amount of the fentanyl she was receiving. And the amount was such a reduction that they would have to get a new cartridge from the pharmacy in order to fulfill the order. However, when the order was written was when the patient was being transferred to the step-down unit, and the order was not seen by either the ICU staff or the step-down staff. Patient continued on the higher dose of fentanyl. Uh, And she wasn't receiving anything for nausea. She was not started on a clear liquid diet. They jumped her from ice chips to a regular diet. And she had dinner approximately 4.30 that afternoon. And I'll always remember this. It was tuna noodle casserole. It was a very heavy dish for someone who was one day post-op. Family had been in to visit. They remarked, wow, she's really sleepy. We're We're gonna let her sleep. She needs her rest. And they continued to monitor her. Again, respiratory rate was right around 10 per minute, well, quite a bit lower than it should have been. By 8 p.m., nursing staff had documented that the patient was somnolent. 
that's a big red flag. No one should be somnolent when they're receiving that type of pain medication. By 8.15, nursing staff returned, patient was blue and apneic. Code blue was called, uh, patient was suctioned. She had copious amounts of food in her mouth and her airway. And the anesthesiologist who wrote that order earlier in the day happened to be on call that evening and wrote a scathing note about his order not being followed. It was not the, the fault of the anesthesia department. They were accepting no responsibility for this occurrence. Patient received two doses of Narcan. She aroused. However, she had a, a hypoxic brain injury as a result. She was airlifted to a major medical center the next day and she passed two months later as a result of her hypoxic brain injury. Now the family was never told the anesthesia note or that she was supposed to receive a reduction in her pain medication. They were just told, oh, she vomited. She wasn't able to clear her airway, hypoxic brain injury. We're very sorry this happened. And the attorney that I worked for for this case, he was not convinced this was a case at all. He's like, no, this is just kind of an unfortunate, unfortunate incident. But I'm friends with the husband, and he asked if I looked at the case. So could you just look it over for me? And I found the note from anesthesia, and I informed him of it. And he's like, are you sure? I said, I will send you the note. It's right here in black and white. He's like, wow, that changes everything. So he filed. Uh, he sent the notice of intent to the hospital. And the hospital called me immediately upon receiving it. I said, please don't file this in court. We will settle. And they settled for a very nice seven-figure amount. Mm. But it had changed nursing policy because they changed it so that anyone with that type of anesthesia was in a C-collar so that they could not compromise their airway while receiving an epidural anesthesia for pain relief. So that case I'm very proud of. Well, as a, a person who did med surge expert witness cases for 20 years, I'm filing through the deviations in my mind, thinking about what the nursing staff should have done, questioning the diet order, making sure the head of bed was elevated, pick up that order change for the anesthesia. Exactly. Uh, multiple issues there. Yes. I was so surprised that they put her right to a regular diet, did not offer her any anti-nausea medication at all. There's just so many different things that went through when I was going through that case. I worked on several cases involving aspiration and none of them had a great clinical outcome for the patient. You know, we don't do well when our airways are blocked. No. And hers was blocked for an unknown period of time, up to possibly 14, 15 minutes. We honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's also the way that my brother died in ICU. He was flat when he should have had his head of bed elevated, and he vomited and aspirated and died. So that's a particularly personal set of facts that I know our listener can react to, can relate to as a tragedy. And, and then to live for two more months 
with no quality of life and racking up the hospital bills. That's a big case. It was a big case. And I'm very sorry to hear about your brother because those are all things that never should have happened. Yes. Yes. Well, we live in an imperfect world, Stacy, and that's why legal nurse consultants help attorneys and do what we do. Very true. I know that you've mentioned working as an expert witness, also behind the scenes. How long have you been a legal nurse consultant? I've been a legal nurse consultant for 14 years. And for the people who are listening, who are are thinking about the process of what happens when an attorney calls, you know, talk to our listener who is picking up the phone. uh, And actually, I, I laugh because I worked in an office for years. So the phone was attached with a cord to my base on my desk, but you can pick up a cell phone, which is probably a much more likely way to get called today. What kinds of questions should the nurse be asking the attorney on that initial case intake? They need to ask for basic facts about the case. When is the statute of limitations? And I know that varies from state to state, but that's a very important question because are you going to have enough time to give this a good and thorough review? Or is this attorney scrambling to find somebody to get it done in a few days time? They need to know what is the attorney's budget for the case? Does this attorney work independently or does he work for a large firm? Is this attorney one who's willing to work with an LNC? Is this an attorney who is being forced to work with an LNC? And that can be a bit of a sticky question for some. Um, Some attorneys have never used an LNC and are very skeptical. And others realize that LNCs are a godsend sometimes because they save them time and money in the long run. They can help them review cases, determine merit. Um, Clients can come in and talk a really good story about what may have happened in the hospital. And I've had cases where none of that was reflected in the medical record. Yeah, that's a great point, Stacey. And then it raises the question of, did it really happen? And it was omitted from the charting or is the patient or potential plaintiff mistaken and the sequence of events didn't happen? What are your thoughts about how a legal nurse consultant helps an attorney with parsing out that aspect of the case? Well, the one thing that the LNC needs to get from the attorney is a full set of medical records. And many, many times it does not happen. And so you really need to be familiar with the different types of electronic medical record systems that are out there and be able to recognize, oh, we're missing, we're missing certain areas such as uh, flow sheets. And if it's a nursing case, you have to have the flow sheets. That is your lifesaver to figure out what happened with the case. Uh, For example, a decubitus ulcer case and to determine if a patient is being turned, that would be in the nursing flow sheets. So you need to have that available. And each patient standard of care is every two hours minimum. So is that being done? Is it being recorded? I had one case where a patient 
it was documented every two hours, but for 12 hours, he was documented as being on his left side. And when I was deposed by the defense attorney, he said, don't you think that could have been a mistake? And I said, well, I have to go by what's documented. And if the nurse documented left side for her entire 12 hour shift, that's what I have to go by. Mm-hmm. I think of the case in which I saw the staff document turning every two hours, but the patient ended up with three stage four pressure injuries, sacrum, both hips, also the heels. I guess it was a total of five because the heels were affected as well. Oh, gosh. And yet the flow sheets every two hours turned, every two hours turned, just all sometimes looked like it had all been filled out at the same time at the end of the shift or maybe for weeks or months at a time. It was hard to tell. I had one case where I, that I recently worked on where a nurse went back for three days and documented. And it was the same nurse for three days. So 72 hours, no nurse works a 72 hour shift. Mm. And she went in and put in all the turning. And I specifically pointed that out to the attorney. I said, you might want to depose her and find out her reasoning for this. I have never seen a nurse work for 72 hours straight, you know, maybe no. 24 in an extreme situation or a double shift, but I don't even know what, what the word would be for six shifts. If they were 12 hour shifts, what would that be? It's not a double. It's not a triple, <laughs> quadruple. I mean, I, can't, I don't know that word. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. So it's things like that, that an LNC needs to be aware of and to look for patterns in charting when you're going through. It's, it's not just a matter of reading, but you really have to analyze what is going on in the record and look for patterns like that. Yes, indeed. You know, you mentioned something earlier I wanted to go back to. You said, does the did the attorney contact you because... Um, they wanted to, or they were forced to. Tell me what you mean by they were forced to. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Do you know how to convince a potential attorney client that you understand his or her needs? As a legal nurse consultant who's been honing my marketing message for decades, I've learned what attracts an attorney client. In this video, I present a sample message to demonstrate what it means to convince the potential client that you understand his or her needs. Listen to this message. You're a plaintiff medical malpractice attorney handling lots of potential claims. You don't know which ones have merit. That person who just left your office wants an answer and fast. She left a stack of medical records with you. You know you should attempt to go through them, but you aren't sure what you should be looking for. Who can make sense of electronic medical records anyway? Before you invest thousands into this case, you need to know what this case is about. Was it just a bad outcome? You think, if only I had a medical professional to ask to look at this case, I'd feel so much more comfortable about taking it. You'd feel assured that you had a case worth investigating. You'd know what to tell the client when she calls to determine if you will take her case. 
As a legal nurse consultant, I help plaintiff attorneys determine which cases have merit. I assist you in weeding out the non-meritorious claims from those with merit. When you give me those medical records, I can pinpoint the issue faster and at a lesser cost than having an expert witness be the first medical professional to review the case. That way you can spend your precious resources on cases with merit and free up your desk space. Consider this message as a template adopted to your particular style and approach and attract those clients with whom you can most deeply connect. This proven way to attract and retain clients is one of the many you'll discover in my book, Your Ideal Attorney Clients, How to Connect with Them by Speaking Their Language. Order it at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Let's return to the show. Um, some attorneys, especially for larger firms, newer attorneys may never have worked with an LNC. They may have worked with paralegals. They may have done their own medical review cases. And there are some attorneys out there that just are a little hesitant. They think LNC is a passing phase. They don't want to be bothered with an LNC. But the senior attorney is like, oh, no, you need one. We've worked with them in the past and you need one. So please contact one. So sometimes there's a learning curve for the attorneys mm -hmm. to realize how valuable we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And you also mentioned when we were talking about that, about the statute of limitations, what raises alarm bells in your mind when an attorney contacts you and you find out that there's a very short time frame for which you can complete the work that the attorney is asking you to do? Well, there's a couple of answers to that question. The first is, can you get the work done? Um, how many pages are you looking at in the record? Is it a couple of thousand? Is it 25,000 pages? Is it a just a very narrow time frame that you're being asked to review, such as a fall event? Or is this a decubitus ulcer case and the patient was hospitalized for two months? Statute of limitations, um, is for the attorney to be able to file the case within the legal time frame that the state allows. They also need to identify their experts in, within that time period. So not only is it crucial for you to get the work done in time, but then they might need your help finding an expert that is willing to testify about this case. And they also have to review the case and be in agreement with the findings. Mm-hmm. As you were talking, I was thinking about one of my attorney clients who contacted me when the statute of limitations had already expired. And he said to me in that initial call, and I documented it, that he was aware that the statute of limitations had expired, but he believed he would be able to maneuver around that. And it turned into a legal malpractice case against him. Oh, no. I was deposed and I was asked in my deposition if I had taken any notes of that initial conversation. And as I was driving to my deposition, I was thinking maybe 
they're going to ask me that question. So I had one of my staff uh, send me an email that summarized the notes that we had put. I had typed it and put it into my database. And so it was in typed form. And she copied that into an email. And when I got asked that question in the deposition, I was under oath. I had to answer and I had to pull up the notes. I think that the attorney ended up settling that case. Wow. Just something so simple. You know, we talked about what you document when you get the initial contact from the attorney. I document what he said to me. And unfortunately, it was part of his undoing because I verified what the family was complaining about. It was a medical malpractice case. And they, for our listener who doesn't understand this, you have to prove that the medical malpractice case is viable. And therefore, if the medical malpractice case had been filed in time, then the plaintiff had a chance. So it's called a case within a case. So since he didn't file what was a viable claim in time, they could go back and sue him for legal malpractice. And it also points out what you were talking about, Stacey, the importance of knowing deadlines and adhering to deadlines, because when attorneys miss deadlines, like the the situation I'm describing, then it comes back on them. And the legal nurse consultant could be part of that chain of accusations. Absolutely. We never want to be part of that. No, we don't. You let's go back to that initial call. Okay. What is the question that you ask about what do you need from me or how do you flesh out what the attorney is looking for? Well, you need to verify what your role is. Is your role strictly behind the scenes or is your role as an ex- expert witness because the what the expectation is, is very different. If it's a behind the scenes, you need to verify, is it a verbal report? Is it a written report? Is it a chronology? Is it all three? You never want to assume that the attorney wants a written report and then charge for one when he didn't want it. You want to know what the attorney wants from you, what the expectation is. As an expert witness, many attorneys do not want anything in writing in regards to your opinion because it's discoverable to the other side. I've had attorneys both ways. Some want a written report from me as an expert, and they put that out um, prior to my deposition. And then we use that as a guideline during my deposition. Others want nothing but my written notes, which are all factual taken from the medical records. So again, clarify with your attorney what the expectation is. And does this vary from state to state, Stacy, in terms of whether an expert needs to write a report? It can. Um, I have done some out-of-state depositions. Um, it you just you need to talk to the attorney and know what they're looking for. And we have some the some listeners or viewers, I was going to combine those two words there. (laughs) There's no word that matches what I was going to say. Uh, In their country, there may be specific regulations about whether experts write reports or don't write reports. So that's always important for us to clarify. Uh, You also mentioned the discoverability, and I will briefly share a conversation I had yesterday with one of my clients 
I had cre created a work product for him about potential causes of a patient's arrest. And he wanted me to share that with an expert witness who would be reviewing the case. And I said to him, and I, I hesitated for a second and I thought, I got to say something. So I said, well, you, you know that anything that we give to this physician is discoverable. And yes, this is. has got some strategy content in it. Do you want your adversary to have access to this? Well, maybe we won't do it that way, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes attorneys don't see things the way we see things. Yes, yes. And we tend to be very protective of our work product. And we say things when we know it's not going to be discovered that are important for our client to know. But we don't want to tip our hand off to opposing counsel about the communication that was going on between ourselves and the attorney. Correct. Another aspect that comes up with screening medical malpractice cases, which we've been talking about, is focusing on damages. Have you ever had a situation where an attorney's been absolutely gung-ho about a case and you've sat there and thought, what are the damages? What happened to this person? Yes, it happens frequently. And that's when you as the LNC need to take a step back and look at the big picture and sometimes educate the attorney. Okay, yes, the, the surgeon made a grave error, but the patient survived and is doing well and has no disability from that incident. It's really not a case at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's put this in the context, especially for our international listeners. How expensive is it? to take a case through the legal system? Well, for plaintiff attorneys, it's very expensive because the plaintiff attorney has to front all the costs up front. They normally do not charge their client anything unless they win the case. So plaintiff attorneys want a very good, very solid, winnable case. So they're gonna turn down small cases. They're gonna turn down cases that are questionable. Um, because they want to make sure they're putting out the money, they want to be able to get paid in the end. For defense attorneys, it's a little bit different since they're working for the insurance company. They're a little bit more freer with defending cases because they're going to get paid no matter what. And I've worked many plaintiff cases where it was obvious there is a great discrepancy, there is a violation of standards of care. And these defense attorneys want to just push and push and push all the way till trial because they're getting paid. Friday, five o'clock. Yes. <laughs> time to settle cases when the trial is supposed to start on Monday. Yes, exactly. We get a little cynical about it, quite honestly, because you do see that pattern, particularly if you're an expert witness and you are getting phone calls from your client, as I'm sure you've had, Stacy, of... It looks like they might be ready to settle. Don't start preparing for trial next week. Wait till you hear from me. Oh, here we are, Stacy. We settled the case. Thank you so much. Send your final invoice. Um, yes. Those are real victories for plaintiff attorneys. Uh, my expression is a bird in the hand is worth two in the jury box. 
That is very true. Uh, and there are, I'm sure, cases where defense attorneys hear the facts, and I, I know this to be true, they want this case to be resolved quickly. They know that this isn't going to produce anything but heartache and tarnishing the reputation of the defendant. So as you were discussing at the beginning of this podcast, the case of the woman who ended up with anoxic brain damage and two months of uh, her family being in misery before she died, that was a case that resolved quickly because of the damages. Yes. And they realized the violation of the standard of care. And they did not want the case being made public because anytime the case is filed in court with the complaint, it becomes a matter of public record. True. The complexity of the case also is a factor that we have to talk about a little bit before we wrap up. We talked about the case with limited damages and um, difficulty proving the link between the damages and the actions of the healthcare providers. But what about the highly complex case with lots of injuries, lots of potential defendants? Are those cases attractive to attorneys in general? Plaintiff attorneys, I should say. To some, it is. To those that work for large firms that have unlimited resources and have a great pool of expert witnesses, those can be very attractive cases. For the solo practitioner who is putting out all the costs on his own, has no assistance, no help, is relying on his LNC, those are the cases they want to refer out and end up with getting a referral fee at the end. I've worked with a number of attorneys who work independently, and they, they tell me, yeah, it's a great case. I just can't afford it. I can't afford all these experts that I would need to hire. And it's a, it's a very sad state for our legal system that people are being turned away with great cases because they're too expensive to litigate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just saw a notice in an email service that I receive, uh, it's called the Legal Intelligencer. It's an online subscription and it focuses on Pennsylvania and the Philadelphia area. Uh, there's a law firm that is well known for handling catastrophic injury cases. And one of their senior associates just left and formed a competing firm to handle catastrophic injury cases. So there's, there's definitely a niche for people who are experienced. I don't know how this new guy is going to manage the costs of litigation because you have to feed the pipeline in order to be able to handle those cases. And if you're starting with an empty pipeline, then you got an issue until you can start getting settlements and awards that pay your bills. But as you were saying, uh, a lot of the small attorneys firms are intimidated by those kinds of cases. And it's so much easier to get a percentage of a settlement than it is to lay out all the money for the expenses. It is. I see it happen a lot. I know that our listener is going to want to know how to find out more about you and the services you offer. I do want to reiterate that Stacy is a medical surgical expert witness. She has an active role in teaching in a, as a faculty 
in a college in Michigan and would be well qualified to review cases in that capacity. What would be the best way to reach you, Stacy? Uh, my email, which is Stacy S T A C E Y at Lohmeyer Consulting, and it's L O H M E I E R Consulting.com. And my cell is 313-909-3444. And that's a great number too, Stacy. I like <laughs> it when numbers repeat. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Stacy. I appreciate you uh, sharing your expertise. You've got a lot of experience. Uh, I am sure you could tell stories nonstop for weeks about the cases that you've been involved in. And I would suspect that some of those lessons that you've learned also maybe show up in your teaching when you're working with students and you can say, you know, it's important that you do this because here are the consequences. And they pay attention to you when you start sharing those kinds of stories. They absolutely do. They really enjoy those post-conferences when I tell stories. Yes. And for you who's been watching this episode on our YouTube channel, which is LegalNurseBusiness.com, be sure to leave a comment below, give us um, a thumbs up or a thumbs down subscribe to our channel. We love to see your comments and be sure to come back next week for another interview with a new individual on Legal Nurse Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pat. This is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast. I have just finished interviewing Tess Breyers, who is an experienced legal nurse consultant in Louisiana who's worked both in-house and as an independent LNC. Tez, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. We've just finished your podcast. We covered a wide range of topics. What were some of the key topics that we covered in your podcast? Um, well, the main topic was how to approach nursing home cases and how to analyze nursing home case records, medical records. Um, those, for example, if you were to have uh, a case with a pressure ulcer, then you would want to concentrate on the wound care documentation. Um, and you would also want to look at um, minimum data sets, which would be performed on admit. That's documentation that takes you from head to toe assessments of the patient. And what were some of the other topics that we covered? We also talked about um, electronic medical records and uh, the software that I use mm -hmm. to, um, to analyze those and bookmark those and um, which medical records were pertinent. Um, we also talked about how to transmit the information to the attorney in, a, uh, in an attorney work product. And we also talked about how to locate research to support findings and um, to support your findings that you tell the attorney um, about issues. And we got into some of the, the pros and cons, which I think will be particularly interesting for individuals who have considered whether it would be a, a good idea to start their LNC career by working in a law firm, or is it a better idea to start as an independent LNC? 
we covered those issues as well. I think each are possible, but I believe it's an advantage to work in-house in a, in a law firm um, for some time, maybe at, you know, for months or a year or however long so that you can get the experience there and have relationships with attorneys so that you become familiar with their needs. And um, as an independent, it, being an independent LLC takes a lot of determination, a lot of consistency, and um, being able to accept that you will get a lot of no's, we're not in need of your service. But then when you get that one yes, that we do need your service, it can be very rewarding and bring on new cases by word of mouth. Excellent. Well, thank you, Tez, so much for being a guest on Legal Nurse Podcast. Be sure to catch Tez Breyer's podcast. You'll find that on the audio channels, Spotify, Apple Podcast, a variety of audio channels on our video channel, which is on YouTube at LegalNurseBusiness.com and on our website at podcast.LegalNurseBusiness.com. We'll see you there. And thank you for being a watcher or a listener of Legal Nurse Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.